I'm Michael, and welcome to another edition of Cond, where each week we delve into another incredible story of deception, deceit, and duplicity. And I'm Amy. This week's story involves crimes against children, so a warning from the outset that this is likely to get quite dark. Listener discretion is advised on this one. Let's get straight into it. This is the tragic story of the disappearance of Nicholas Barclay. Our story begins in June of 1994 in Texas in the USA. Nicholas Barclay was 13 years old and was, in many ways, a very typical teenager. However, he was known to be a little difficult both at school and at home. He was an attention seeker and was often getting into trouble at school. He also had a tendency to row with his family, occasionally even threatening to run away to avoid having to live with his parents anymore. His behaviour meant that some local children weren't allowed to play with Nicholas and as his mum was struggling to discipline him, her brother Jason moved in with the family to support her. June 13th, 1994 started like any other summer's day in San Antonio, Texas, with Nicholas playing a game of basketball with his friends in the local park. When the game ended, Nicholas used a payphone to call home and request a lift. Nicholas Barclay's uncle Jason took the call, but at the time Nicholas's mum was asleep following a night shift. Not wanting to wake her, and with it still being daylight, Jason suggested Nicholas walk home on his own. However, Nicholas did not arrive home. The Barclay family raised the alarm to report the disappearance of Nicholas, but authorities were not immediately concerned, assuming that Nicholas was simply hiding somewhere. Nicholas actually had a court appearance booked for the next day, so it was believed he was simply trying to get out of attending. However, as time passed and Nicholas still failed to return, concern for him grew and people began to become more and more unsettled. Police searched Nicholas's bedroom and discovered he had taken no clothing or belongings with him. If he had deliberately run away, surely he would have packed some items to take with him. It was also believed he had just $5 with him at the time of the basketball game. The San Antonio police launched a missing persons inquiry and the town began searching for Nicholas. What was both unsettling and frustrating for police and the family was that there was absolutely nothing to go on. Nicholas had simply vanished. With so little money, the only feasible way he could have left town was to hitchhike. Bizarre then that there was no sightings of him. Weeks turned into months, each day the family praying they would hear news of what had happened to Nicholas. With no leads, the case went cold. Nicholas Barclay remained a missing person. You just got to really feel sorry for the family, haven't you, at this time? Like, you hear about similar cases a lot in the news and it just must be absolutely horrendous. There's nothing worse, is there? I can't, I can't think of anything worse than your child just disappearing. And also, like, the is it the uncle? He'd probably blame himself because he didn't go pick him up and stuff He suggested like he walk home, yeah, I know, awful. Three years on from the disappearance of Nicholas, something unbelievable happened. The family of Nicholas remained hopeful, but the community had almost given up any hope of finding him when police received a phone call from the law enforcement authorities in Spain. They reported that they had found Nicholas Barclay and they had him in custody. What must the parents thought at this point? Three years later. He's been missing for three years 
and now he shows up in Spain. You probably feel all the emotions, wouldn't you, really? Like, literally every single emotion. Like, you probably wouldn't really believe it. You'd feel anger. I can't imagine it, really. It must be horrendous. A week earlier, over 5,000 miles away from San Antonio, Texas, a phone call was received by police in Leoneres in Spain. The call was from two tourists who said they had found a young boy. At a guess, he was about 14 or 15, but he had no documents or ID. He was cold and scared. Police immediately dispatched officers to the location only to find the person cowering and shivering in a phone box. The boy was taken to a youth shelter where authorities began trying to find out from the boy who he was and what had happened to him. The boy was very clearly terrified and reluctant to speak. After many hours, it was revealed that the boy had grown up in the States, where he had been kidnapped and taken to Europe. In Europe, he was held by a human trafficking ring until he had managed to escape, when he fled to safety and was found by the tourist in a phone box. At this stage, however, the boy refused to reveal his name, so authorities were unable to identify which missing boy they had found. The boy said he wanted to call home and insisted to police that once he'd phoned home, he'd tell them exactly who he was. Of course, the time in the US is quite a way behind the time in Spain, so whilst authorities were working in Spain, most of the US would have been asleep. The boy requested to be left with a phone overnight so he could call at a suitable time. The police and social services had no idea what to do with the boy as he had no name, no ID, no records, so reluctantly, they agreed. Is this, a, is this a little strange? Like, they're not sure what to do with him, but no one's willing to sit with him out of hours when he makes the call. So they're just like, all right, we'll leave you here. Here's a phone. We'll be back in the morning. Let us know how you get on. That definitely wouldn't happen now in the UK. No way. If that social services were involved, that kid would not be left unsupervised. Not initially, anyway, I wouldn't have thought. It does seem very, very bizarre, doesn't it? But that's what happened. The next morning, when the authorities returned to work, the boy had a name, Nicholas Barkley. He said he had called the States overnight and he had even managed to get them to fax across the missing persons poster featuring his face from three years previous. Police were deeply sceptical, but with nothing else to go on, they contacted the family and informed them of the reappearance of their son. What an absolute emotional roller coaster this must be for them. Like, first of all, to lose your son, not hear anything from him for three years, and then to get a call from people in this people in Spain saying, "Oh yeah, we found him now." I I actually can't get my head around quite what they must have been feeling at this point. You would have thought, like, obviously we don't know where the story is going to go right now, but you would have thought that they would do a few more checks, like ID checks or. DNA checks or I don't know. Yeah, I suppose what could they have done? Yeah, difficult. The family were elated and Nicholas's sister, Carrie, immediately booked a flight to Spain. The first available flight was a few days later, but she didn't sleep at all in the lead up to it or on the flight itself. This was her first flight out of the country. So not only was she anxious about the unbelievable prospect of seeing her baby brother again, but just the logistics of getting there also filled her with dread. Kerry landed in Spain exhausted and was greeted by officials at the airport who escorted her to the place where Nicholas was being held. Kerry was understandably quiet and visibly concerned, 
so the Spanish escort chatted to her on the drive, explaining key landmarks as they passed. Once they arrived, she was held in a waiting area whilst others went to collect Nicholas. He emerged, sheepishly, wearing dark glasses, a baseball cap and a scarf. Carrie immediately ran up to greet Nicholas and immediately flung her arms around him. She squeezed him tight and held him. She touched his nose and said, Nicholas, were you worried I wouldn't recognise you? I remember that nose, just like your Uncle Pat. Don't worry, everything is going to be all right. As Spanish officials watched on, there was no doubt Nicholas Barclay had been found. But the person in Carrie's arms was not Nicholas Barclay, but rather an imposter, a Frenchman called Frederick Bourdon. But let's rewind a bit. How had Frederick managed to steal the identity of an American boy who had been missing for three years? When Frederick was left alone overnight promising to call home, he had called a number of US police stations. On each call, he would tell the US police that he was a Spanish police officer and that he had found a missing boy from the States, but he had no idea of the boy's name. Police in the States were unsurprisingly unable to help with the very vague request for help. There was thousands of missing people across the US and there was very little detail to help narrow it down. However, to try and help, US police gave Frederick the number for the Centre for Missing and Exploited Children. Frederick called this number and repeated his vague request, saying, We found a kid from the US, but we don't know who he is. Frederick suggested that the boy he'd found was about 16 or 17. So the Centre for Missing and Exploited Children began looking into missing persons cases for children who would now be about that age. They said, A boy aged 13 went missing from San Antonio three years ago. His name was Nicholas Barclay. Frederick asked if they could fax him over a photo of the boy, so they faxed across his missing persons poster. Frederick decided that the likeness was close enough that he could now be Nicholas Barclay. He had found the person whose identity he was about to steal. It'd be interesting to see how many sort of missing persons pictures they sent and he was like, nope, don't look like me. Nope, that's a girl. Nope. You know what I mean? Yeah, I would be interested to know that. How many did he get through before he he, he went, yeah, Nicholas will do. Because I think, I get the feeling he, he picked Nicholas just because he's sort of the right sort of build, like right sort of height. Like, yeah, he's close enough. That's fine. But I wonder, I wonder how many he looked at. But also, I'd like to think like if I hadn't seen my dad for like three years, he'd still know if... <laughs> You would like to think so, yeah, yeah. So did Frederick Bourdain look like Nicholas Barclay? A bit. He was the right sort of build. Frederick was actually 23, pretending to be a 16-year-old. But his story had been that he'd been held captive for three years at the hands of European people traffickers, so he could excuse any perceived changes to his appearance by citing the immense physical and emotional turmoil he had supposedly endured. So he's relying on the change. He's relying on people going, oh, he looks a bit different, but then he's been abused for three years. It's understandable that he'd look a bit different. It's very similar to that, The Missing, that was on BBC a few years ago. Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, this is exactly that story, isn't it? Except this one's real. (laughs) And they swapped the sisters, didn't they? Yeah. He had convinced officials and the family, but there was a problem. So far, Frederick had only seen a black and white fax showing a picture of Nicholas. 
The wheels were in motion and his sister was on her way to meet him when a letter arrived from the US Centre for Missing and Exploited Children and Frederick was horrified to see a full-colour picture of Nicholas. Nicholas had bright blue eyes and blonde hair. Frederick was brunette with brown eyes. Surely people would immediately realise he was not who he said he was. Before the arrival of his sister, he was able to purchase hair dye and bleach his hair blonde, but there was no way he could change his eye colour. Frederick was convinced he would soon be found out. How on earth did he have time to nip out for some bleach? And and no one asked, what are you doing? Why have you suddenly changed your hair colour? No one thought to ask. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of raised eyebrows around this story, but for that, for now, let's just let's just plow on. Carrie and Nicholas headed to the airport to head back to the states. Frederick Bourdain had already considered doing a runner, but Carrie's willingness to accept him as her brother convinced him otherwise, and he continued with his plan to head to the states. The family of Nicholas Barclay headed to the airport to greet Carrie and their long lost Nicholas. Even as he came through arrivals, Nicholas remained nervous, quiet and twitchy, which the family all put down to his traumatic experience. They got in the car and drove for a quiet but excited ride home. The family could not stop smiling. What would you talk about on this drive, right? You've you've just been reunited with your son. They all think he's their son, right? You've not seen him for three years. You're on the drive home. What? I mean, where'd you start? Like, you don't just go, oh, what have you been up to? Do you know what I mean? I'd like, I hate to be the person that points out the obvious, but he's going to have a Spanish accent. That is another really weird thing about this story. I mean, I suppose if he did it in such a way, they might think he's just picked up the twang. But American and Spanish is very different. Yeah, and he was in the States till he was 13. He's only been away for three years. I know he's, again, he's, he's putting it all down to abuse, but you wouldn't come home with a Spanish accent, would you? I don't know, maybe you would. It might be one of those things where the family like really, really, really like want to believe that it's him. I think there might be a bit of that, yeah. Again, similar to the missing. When Frederick arrived at the Barclay home, the US was very different to how he imagined. Where he envisaged large skyscrapers and a bustling city, the Texas home was calm, quiet and remote. Nicholas didn't appear to recognise any of his family or surrounding town. Family friends came to welcome him back to the city, but Nicholas insisted he'd lost his memory from all that had happened to him. None of the family or friends pressed him on his ordeal, believing he would confide in them when he was ready. Was all of this a little bit far-fetched, what do you think? Again, like, I'm just going to go back to my point. I think it was just, they want to believe it's him. You know, if someone's been through a very traumatic time for three years, they are going to be different and maybe... So they're just willing to ignore any cosmetic changes, any the fact he doesn't remember any of the town, the, the accent. They're just going to gloss over all of that stuff. Oh, you've changed from blue eyes to brown and you now sound Spanish. It's fine. We'll carry on. Whilst the family were willing to allow Nicholas time to reacclimatize before discussing his ordeal, the FBI were far less patient. They immediately requested a meeting with Nicholas to find out as much as they could about his experience with a view to finding his captors. So Nicholas began his tale. He told officers that whilst he was walking home, he had been abducted by military, grabbed from the street and bundled into the back of a van. 
He was then drugged and flown overseas, with many calling points, and at no point was he aware of his location. He was not the only child being held, and each night the group of children were subjected to severe sexual abuse. The FBI report read, quote, Every night, all of the kids were raped and molested by men. These men were American, Mexican and European. They kept burning him and giving him insects to eat. His left foot was broken with a crowbar. The boys' identities were changed by changing their hair colour, eye colour or other ways. A solution was put in his eyes. His eye colour was changed from blue to brown by the use of this solution. Nicholas also said they used a baseball bat to break both of his hands. They were forced to wear headphones with screaming voices played in their ears that said, You are not you. I mean, the eye colour. I mean, if people could actually get a solution to change their eye colour, I think that would be quite well known, wouldn't it? Well, do you know, I, I looked into that because that is a cu- obviously a crucial part of this story. And whilst it seems extremely unlikely, I think it might be possible, although very dangerous and highly, really not recommended. I think it's potentially possible to permanently change someone's eye colour. But you would really never consider ever doing it. And he's literally come up with this story based on a very few facts that he would have had from the missing persons poster and the image. Again, people are not going to question a young guy's trauma. No, absolutely not. And I think the tale he tells is so horrendous. Like it's, you you couldn't make this up, surely. Like this is, you know, he's talking about being raped every night. He's talking about having his hands and feet broken with baseball bats. He's talking about having solution forced into his eyes to change his eye colour. You wouldn't turn around and go, nah, mate, you're making all this up. Like you'd have to take him at face value and be like, wow. Yeah, I suppose the police would probably question it a bit more, but maybe at this point, you know, they're going to have, you've got to have empathy, haven't you? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, Let's take a breather from this to find out who actually was Frederick Bourdain and how did he end up here? Frederick Bourdain was born on the 13th of June 1974 in Nanterre, which is a western suburb of Paris. He was raised by his mother and never knew his father. His mother told him only that his dad was an Algerian immigrant. Growing up, he didn't receive much attention from his mother and unbelievably carried out his first deceit at the age of just five years old. Bourdon told his classmates at school that his father was a British secret agent. Later in his life, he would try and justify his trickery as a means to receive the love and warmth that he didn't receive as a child. Very familiar, this old tale, isn't it? The secret agent thing, yeah, we've seen this before, haven't we? Um, also, we've seen the motive before as well, like wanting attention, wanting pr- uh, status. And also like having quite a rubbish childhood, feeling like really worthless. So then creating, adopting a new persona, like there's loads of documentaries or or box sets on on this sort of tale. Yeah, adopting a character to make up for some something that was missing in your life growing up. Yeah, yeah. So you're this, you know, Billy Big Balls sort of thing because actually you feel like nada. It's an inferiority complex. Yeah, 
and also like sign again of like could be questioned about his mental health as well. Frederick had been in juvenile detention centres in France since the age of 12 and was on the run since the age of 16. It was then that he began adopting false identities and stealing people's names. In one of his cons, he approached a policeman in France, claiming to be a British schoolboy who was lost on a school trip. He was taken to the police station, but his lie was quickly uncovered when it was clear he couldn't speak a word of English. Frederick learned from this mistake and planned his future cons much more carefully. Between then and the Nicholas Barclay case, nearly nine years later, he had learnt five different languages, including English. So he's clearly very bright, very smart, and actually very dedicated to stealing identities and pretending to be someone else. He's gone to the trouble of learning five languages just so he can be an imposter and take on other people's identities. He's he's worked that hard just to be a liar. (laughs) It's like, go hard or go home, isn't it? It really is, and he's gone hard. Back to the case. Any doubts the FBI might have had were quashed by the horror and unbelievable nature of the details of Nicholas's story. One agent present at the interview said, When I left, I was shaken by it. That is not what you lie about. You don't go into detail about torture and the murdering of children or whatever. None of that seemed normal. After he was questioned by the police, it seemed Frederick had gotten away with it. He had a passport, he had ID, he had a home to live in and nobody suspected anything. The FBI had urged the Barclay family not to speak to the media and tried to keep news of the story from spreading. The last thing they wanted was the news of Nicholas getting back to his captors. However, such a fascinating story about a child returning home after three years naturally drew quite a bit of media interest. This is Eyewitness News at 10. He disappeared without a trace three years ago. Tonight, a San Antonio boy is back home. Nicholas Barclay is now 16 years old. He vanished when he was 13. Nicholas says he was kidnapped and taken to Spain. He says for three years he was repeatedly drugged, beaten and raped, all part of a sex slave operation involving dozens of missing children. Frederick Bourdain ignored the request of the FBI and carried out interviews with the press, believing that maximising his exposure and circulating his image as much as possible would cement the belief that he was Nicholas. A TV show called Hard Copy had hired a private investigator called Charlie Parker to look into the case of Nicholas's reappearance. Charlie Parker had spoken to the family and was actually present whilst Nicholas was being interviewed for the news. Here is P.I. Charlie Parker talking on American news channel CNN. When I went to the house during the interview, uh, I was fortunate enough to have the real Nicholas Barclay's photograph sitting right by me. And the imposter was being interviewed. And I asked the cameraman to zoom in on his ears. His ears? It's a technique Scotland Yard uses uh, to identify people. the ear is the only part of the human body that doesn't age. Hmm. So I got to uh, my office, compared the ears, and I knew instantly I had an imposter. Back at his office, Charlie used Photoshop to zoom in on the news footage of Nicholas and compared it to a historical photograph, focusing specifically on his ears. The ears were a totally different shape. Charlie's initial suspicion 
San Antonio had a spy. Charlie brought his concerns to the FBI, who struggled to believe Charlie's theory. Why would a family take in somebody who wasn't their son? Meanwhile, Nicholas had returned to high school in the hope of finishing his education. Right, so now the FBI are... Well, they're now thinking exactly what you said. Why is a family going, Oh, Nicholas, we love you, when it's not him? Meanwhile, uh, the, the, the private investigator now thinks that there's a spy in their town and he's now attending school. Do you know what I think's a bit creepy? Like, isn't this um, Freddy guy, Frederick, isn't he like 21 and he's like going into a school? 23 is. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, so if you're the private investigator who's gotten to the bottom of this and worked it out, yeah, what's he doing in a school? What does he want? Why is he here, this guy? I mean, that's not legal, is it? It's not great. The FBI still had very little to go on and so arranged for a forensic expert in Houston to meet up with Nicholas. The pretense was that they wanted to analyse Nicholas's mental health and help with any likely lasting effects from his trauma. Nicholas repeated the same story but the trauma expert noticed very few of the likely traits of someone who had experienced severe trauma. He was also curious as to Nicholas's accent. Despite being raised in the US till the age of 13, Nicholas was unable to pronounce words without a strong European accent. There was now little doubt. This person was not who they said they were. The FBI called the Barclay family and alerted them to their belief that Nicholas was an imposter. Nicholas was due to fly back from Houston to Texas and the FBI urged the family not to go to the airport to meet him. They would instead be there to intercept him. On the phone, Carrie, Nicholas's sister, shrieked in terror and disbelief. The FBI headed to the airport to greet the returning Nicholas Barkley and despite their recent phone call, there was Carrie. The FBI was stunned. Why would she welcome home someone believed to be an imposter? Next, the FBI spoke to Nicholas's mother, requesting a DNA sample. DNA was going to be the only way to get a definitive answer on whether Nicholas was an imposter or not. Nicholas's mother refused to provide a sample and became increasingly hostile towards the police. Next, the FBI got a warrant to get a DNA sample from the family and from Nicholas. Nicholas Barclay's fingerprints were distributed to Interpol to see if they could find a match from overseas agencies on who this person actually was. In March of 1998, the FBI received a call from police in Spain who said they had found a match for Nicholas's prints. They said they would fax over all the details that they had for the person. Officers stood around the fax machine with nervous anticipation as the machine whirred into action. A name emerged on the machine. Frederick Bourdon. Again, like the fact that the mother doesn't want to give the DNA, like part of you is be like, are you a muck? But then part of me feels... Like, maybe she was suspicious and maybe the reality of that is just absolutely horrendous. So she's going to, like, technically lose her son twice. That is an interesting theory. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, there is another theory, which actually comes from Frederick Bourdain himself. We'll come to that in a second. Here's another question I don't get, right? Interpol had Frederick Bourdain's fingerprints. They knew who he was. Why didn't they take the fingerprints of the boy right back at the start when they found him in a phone box? None of this would have happened if they'd have taken his fingerprints at that point. It sounds like 
you know, they found this boy, maybe a lack of resources or whatever, and they just didn't generally didn't know what to do with him and they just panicked and probably didn't really follow best practice. I think that's fair to say. I think that's exactly what happened. When challenged, Frederick made no attempt to continue with his deception. He told officers he was French, not American. He was 23 and not 16. By this point, he had been living with the family for nearly five months. Bourdain pleaded guilty to passport fraud and perjury and was jailed for six years, which was double what the sentencing guidelines suggested. However, an even bigger twist in the tale was to come. Frederick Bourdain told police that the family of Nicholas Barclay were responsible for the murder of Nicholas. A homicide investigation was opened and Nicholas's mother was made to take part in a polygraph test. Three times. On the first two occasions, she passed the test. On the third occasion, she failed every single question. When police told her the results of the test, she ran out of the room screaming. So polygraphs or lie detectors, we should probably say at this point, they are notoriously unreliable. Like they're not allowed in court or anything like that because they are basically nonsense. Like the one thing I think of with, uh, well, two things actually, a lie detector is Jeremy Kyle. And the other thing I think of is Love Island, where (laughs) like a few episodes, like I think it's like a few episodes like to the end, they put like um, all their couples in to like do a lie detector detect a test and like ask questions like does he love me does he want to be with me forever (laughs) i think the fact that they're used on love island jeremy carl is probably why they're not permissible in a court of law um so she passed it twice failed it once that's pretty inconclusive and then polygraphs are bullshit anyway jason barkley who was living with nicholas at the time of his disappearance was also questioned by police and he suggested that he was always sceptical about the imposter, Nicholas, but that he didn't want to challenge his family's belief. Before any follow-up interview could be carried out, Jason Barkley died of a drug overdose. The homicide investigation was eventually closed due to lack of evidence. I wonder whether the drug overdose was related to this. Yeah, um, there are. there's a great Reddit thread about this where this case where loads of people just chip in with their theories of what they think happened. If you want to go and read, in fact, we'll put a link to it in the description for this episode because it's it's definitely worth a read. There are some fascinating theories of what's gone on on the internet. Yes, the drug overdose by Jason Barkley, not clear if it was deliberate or not. If it was, it could be the guilt coming back from the years earlier because he let him walk home on his own. It could be all that bit resurfacing or maybe he was more involved. And also, like, it'd be a complete, like, it'd just mess up your mind, wouldn't it? Everything that you believed for those three years, and then this person comes back and then it's really confusing, you don't really believe it. If that is any, anyone going to, you know, push somebody to the brink. Yeah, true, yeah. Or he could have just been taking drugs as a bit of an escape and then just took a one too many. All very possible theories, yeah. The case of Nicholas Barclay was not Frederick Bourdain's last case of being an imposter. When he was released from prison in 2003, he returned to France and assumed the identity of Leo Bailey, a 14-year-old French boy who had been missing since 1996. DNA testing proved that he was not Bailey. 
Why is he always picking people that are so young? Why is he always being an imposter for children? Like, he's nearly 30 by that point. Why is he picking a 16-year-old? I think it's a little bit creepy, but also I think he thinks that, again, that what we spoke about, the families are going to want him to be found. Ah, yes, he wants the family unit thing, doesn't he? Yeah. Whereas, like, if you went missing and then somebody posed to be you, I'd be like, nah, it's not you. Yeah, good point. Yep. Obviously, I would be beyond devastated if that happened. Thank you very much. The following year, he went to Spain and claimed to be a teenager whose mother had died in a Madrid train bombing. Again, DNA proved otherwise, and he was deported back to France. A year later, he pretended to be a Spanish orphan, who was eventually found out by a school administrator who recognised him from a documentary about his deceptions. The media dubbed him the Chameleon. In 2007, Frederick Bourdain actually got married to a French woman called Isabel. They went on to have five children together. After their first child was born, a journalist for The New Yorker asked Bourdain if he was a changed man now that he was a father. He replied, no, this is who I am. Unfortunately, there are still no answers as to the most sinister aspect of this case. Where is Nicholas Barclay? So that is the case of Frederick Bourdon, the disappearance and then supposed reappearance of Nicholas Barclay. Like I say, a lot of theories on the internet about all this, so definitely worth a read if you fancy having your mind blown about what people think happened. Um, Obviously, Frederick's theory is that the family were involved, and that would certainly explain why they were so willing to welcome him with open arms, perhaps. Because if they know what's happened to Nicholas and this guy turns up, they they might go, Nicholas, it's you! So that no one ever digs into what actually happened to Nicholas. Maybe. So goes the theory. Just say it. Just putting it out there. Not my words. <laughs> yeah, actually, I didn't even think of that. I just want these people to be nice people, you know. I mean, want them to be honest. And they may well be, but like I say, lots of theories pointing fingers in a lot of different directions. Thank you for listening. We would love to know your thoughts on this and all of our stories. If you would like to get in touch, you can get us on Twitter or Instagram. We're at Condcast or online at concast.com and we will see you again next week.